It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yes! Woo! God's going well. This week's starring special guest are recently imported from Italy, Ronan Chris Murphy. <laughs> Uh, welcome to the big show. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> and thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. And thank you, Ronan, for bringing me olives. I said to him, he actually sent me an email like five days ago and said, would you mind if we push it back a week if I have to stay here in Italy for my client? Can we push it back? And I said, no problem. Bring me a jar of olives. <laughs> so he ended up showing up on time and with the olives, mm. for which I am very grateful because nothing like olives from the motherland. <laughs> And I'm not drunk, I'm just jet-lagged. Oh, yeah, so there's that. I can't be fully accountable for anything I say today. He's on day number two, uh, <laughs> having just returned, and he is jet-lagged. So uh, we're calling today's episode Dumb, Dumb, and Dumber. Um, okay, hello, guys, in the chat room. Everything working okay over there? And yes, I can already hear the fan pumping away on my computer. We are working to resolve that issue, but I'm not making any promises before the road rally. Um, far better audio via YouTube. Yeah, and it comes with its own <sighs> from the fan. Not so bad, right? I've got a gobo on the camera, so you guys probably aren't hearing it. I just have the solution. I'll talk to you after that. Okay. Um, use a PC. No. <laughs> so, I know. I'm just joking. I, I, you know, I don't even know how to turn one on. I literally do not. I think not, it's a button on the front, too. I don't know how to turn on a PC. So, aren't you so, glad you tuned in for these hot tips? Yes. Speaking of hot tips, um, later in today's episode... We will be giving, ooh, this one's still in the wrapping, it's virginal, giving away this beautiful gauge ECM87. And the cool thing is, now you can get Mike Clone software, which makes it emulate, uh, let's see, what does it emulate? An M49, a U87, a U67, a U47, a 47 FET, a C12, a 414, a Sony C800, and a couple of other submarines, I mean microphones. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, I'll keep that out of the box so we can show it off later. Uh, but it is true, Shirelli did sell Gage. Another gentleman owns the company now, but uh, we're still giving stuff away. So we're going to talk about something today that Rona and I have talked about uh, through some emails for the last few days, which is stuff that sounds old. Um, I was just telling before we went live that I was messing around with Easy Drummer one night in bed some months ago, and I found that the drums that I was choosing sounded like the stuff I used to do in the studio in 1977. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And it sounded great, you know, mm -hmm. big fat <clears throat> snare with lots of sizzle on top and doo, doo, and tom toms. Yeah. And as I'm telling you, Rona goes, yeah, 1980. I said, exactly right. Yeah. So we hear this. There's a plague of people making recordings that sound like 1980s. So let's go instrument by instrument and talk about how the styles have changed. Yeah. Well, they change. Um, they actually change slower than they used to. Okay. You know, I think, you know, if you looked at 1965 to 68, big shifts there. You know, 68 to 78, big shifts there. Mm -hmm. And then the 80s, a lot of things. But in the last couple of decades, things haven't changed as dramatically, surprisingly enough. 
But we do sort of see... Yeah, with all the technology moving, I mean, now yeah. it's like every six months there's a new tech cycle. Yeah, and there's new things like integrations of bringing in different facets of electronic music and things like that. Integration in our industry means putting engineers in the back of the bus and bringing them to a different school. <laughs> exactly. Got it. <laughs> um, but that's one of the things where you can usually... Yeah, there's a term dated, which is really common. And often Something really, neither of us were in high school. <laughs> <laughs> but boom. I'm just so funny. I hadn't gotten into engineering yet, so I still had a couple dates. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but, but part of this, and I'm sure a lot of people get this as feedback from submissions for different listings, and right. something sounds dated. And I've talked to these people at it the rally, which frustrates them I'm looking so forward much. to seeing you guys there. Yeah. But a lot of people are like, ah, they're telling me it's dated. I don't know what to... And 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 some of that is the writing style, some is the production style, but it does go, you can change writing and production, but if the engineering sounds yeah. good. Yeah, and even where so much stuff is virtual, it's choice of sounds. Yeah. So, I mean, even one thing, this is get kind of nerdy, but, you know, hard rock stuff, comparing something from, say, 1988 to, you know, now. One of the big differences, aside from different reverb issues, is uh, hard rock in the 80s was snare drum forward mm -hmm. and kick drum back. Uh, around the early 90s, it started to shift. So all of a sudden, it became very kick drum forward. Okay. So you can actually tell, like a big classic, you know, great hair metal record or something. Yeah. Well, have a kick drum that's kind of like boom, 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 and a big prominent in-your-face snare drum. Right. And then thanks to Andy Wallace, Nirvana's Nevermind, and everything that followed after that, now it's kick drums that are much more articulate, much more forward. And snare drums are kind of blended back a little bit yeah. into the mix, big time. Yeah, so it's a, it's like a complete shift of where just where you put those two instruments. So Do you realize how many lives you just saved with that observation? <laughs> how many bad sounding records you saved? Okay. Or or just not right if you're trying to peg a certain genre or style because there's nothing wrong with trying to make a record that sounds like it was from 1986. But what a lot of people are trying to do, especially in something like Taxi, where you're pitching things for listings, yeah. where I'm trying to make something that sounds like 2018, and it comes back like, you know, 1986. Which, if I may interrupt for a second, people are going to say, yeah, but sometimes you guys want vintage or you want retro sounding. That's true. Yeah. But 85% of the time, they want contemporary sounding. They yeah. want to sound like the radio. Yeah. And truth is, even a lot of things that we feel as having very contemporary kind of vibe... When you think of somebody like an Amy Winehouse or an Adele or Duffy, some of those, mm -hmm. you know, or even like, you know, Black Keys kind of things that have a retro sound, they're retro in spirit. But when you pull it apart from a technical point of view, they right. actually have extremely modern. You know, Amy Winehouse, great, you know, amazing music, that vintage soul. But if you pull apart her productions, you know, in terms of the approaches to compression, in terms of sort of the brightness or darkness of different elements, a lot of that's actually very contemporary. Yeah. And um, and a lot of people miss that in a way when they're trying I, to... E even, uh, I can't think of it, but I just heard uh, is holding her arms up. I thought she was like... <laughs> Please stop. stop. I, mean, I surrender. <laughs> we're off the air again. No, no. Uh, anyway, um, uh, gosh, I can't think of the guy. The piano vocal song, it was a giant hit. And you would think, how, how many ways are there really to record mm -hmm. a piano and a vocal? But if you really listen mm -hmm. to it, it doesn't sound anything like a piano vocal would have sounded back in the Jurassic period when I was making it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Nothing like it. Yeah. Uh, I would have to work really hard to match that sound. Mm -hmm. So, But, uh, you know, some, like Adele, like an artist, 
like that piano vocal. You yeah. know, hello, dun, dun. yeah. Oh my God, the the compression on her vocal is so extreme and over the top. Yeah. And I don't say that as a bad thing. No, it works in lot, context. But a lot of people would think that, oh yeah, Adele, that's going to be natural and dynamic. No, not at all. Yeah. And the Adele record is so over the top smashed. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say the compression on that is what you would expect on a record from like Slayer. <laughs> uh, and I say that with no sarcasm whatsoever. I'm still laughing. And, and that's and that's one of the things people don't understand. Which I think I haven't. I got to talk to Angel. I'm thinking of doing a whole thing on compression when I'm in in the theater, the uh, okay. road rally, because understanding compression is such a massive, massive part. It scares people, um, and, it and it should to some extent because it's really hard to mess up compression it's the most wonderful tool in the world yeah and if, if, but the first year you use it you will screw things up yeah. more often than not but but mastering it and understanding it is yeah. one of the huge differences between the great engineers and those who are, aren't there yet right yeah absolutely so. um somebody once said to me it was an engineer named jack adams that back in the very early days of my career said to me Women like high notes, men like low notes. Everything goes left, center, or right. Um, compress the piss out of everything. And shorten your reverb because it's probably too long. Those are his golden rules. Yeah, I mean, that was given to me in 1974. That would still I just, get you pretty much in the ballpark. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's really not that complicated. You need to master each one of those things. Yeah. I mean, literally down to do I pan it full left, full right, or down the middle? Yeah, even though I heard that the male female part inverse, just oh, I don't <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, he compared it to body parts, which I won't go into. Jack, Jack was a little um, inappropriate, let's say. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jack, if you're still alive, which I seriously doubt, I love you, buddy. <laughs> oh, and I, and I like the uh, sleeping with your 1176 under your pillow. Yes. <laughs> By the way, oh man, I saw a. Compressor limiter. There's a company that makes these little standalone units. They're not much bigger than this. Is it the RNC from FMR Audio? Yes. Yes. I am going to buy one just to mess around with it. It's uh, great. Uh, they're like a couple hundred bucks. Uh, or... Unless they went up 175 new. Okay. Stereo. Tell them again what it is. Uh, so the FMR, its company is FMR Audio, little mom and pop. What does FMR Texas. stand for? Like, I have no idea, but the RNC is the unit, which stands for the really nice compressor. That's right. I knew it was an uh, acronym for something. And if you're if you're looking to get into good hardware compressors, uh, cheap, that's almost your only option. Somebody said to me the thing is damn near an 1176, maybe even better in some regards, and it's 175 bucks. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, of, to me, it actually feels very, very different. Yeah, but you know, my my workflow has changed. I, you know, I have more of a hybrid setup. But when I was um, when I was full analog console for every mix, uh, I had one as a, a parallel bus on virtually every record I mixed. Wow. You know, and I've got four thousand dollar compressors and stuff that right. were used on a, lots of mixes. And this $175 one. Uh, it's tiny. I mean, the thing yeah. is like an inch and a half tall yeah. by... Third, it's a third of a rack. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, the, yeah, the RNC, which is the really nice compressor. Um, they also make one called the uh, RNLA, which is the really nice limiting amplifier. Right. Which is cool, but I think the RNC is better. It's even the cheaper one, I think. You can, it is cheaper. And yeah. you can find them, uh, Google them, you can find them on Amazon. So yeah. just saying, I, I, I ran into that thing and I kept reading the reviews going, I just want to buy one of these just to play with it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, 
Okay, so let's go back to... Let's stick with drums. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's start with the kick drum. Yeah. What for... Let's call it... Let's make it pop. Yeah. Uh, and most of the stuff that we're going to talk about will be pop unless yep. otherwise mentioned. So a pop kick drum today versus a pop kick drum back in the Jurassic period. Mm -hmm. uh, a big thing in pre... Almost pre-1980, but then pre-19... Early mid-90s, the thing that changed is kick drum was sort of something that was implied and felt a little bit. Okay. You know, you listen to you know, any Led Zeppelin record, the kick drum is actually kind of usually soft and round, even on like a Motley Crue record, pretty soft and round, and uh, even, you know, a Madonna pop mix or something from the 80s, the kick drum would be a little on the rounder side, but as the decades progressed, they got progressively more high mid forward. And right. a big part of that is around 4K, because 4K is a bam, that that sort of punchy smack beater attack side of a kick drum. And, I mean, uh, I hate this person every day. <laughs> I, hear, eh, I don't know if you guys can hear that or not. Um, anyway, uh, and, and we should talk about beaters, too, because back in the day, a lot of people just went with the standard old compressed felt beater, mm -hmm. and, and that was pretty much it. Sometimes people would tune the drum. People spent a lot of time shoving pillows and pieces of foam in and out of the drum, trying to change the sound that way. I do that every record, I every drum set I track. So what is it today? Um, do you use hard beaters? Do you use yes. wood beaters? Or mm -hmm. do you use plastic, or the kind of rubber, hard compressed rubbery ones? Yeah. What's your favorite it's, beater? It's, I usually... I usually start with whatever the drummer's comfortable with okay. as a starting thing, but the more harder plastic, and a lot of them will have a felt side right. and a more aggressive hard plastic side. Um, if I want something where I want the kick drum to be forward, which is most stuff except for vintage jazz, a lot of times singer-songwriter records, I don't want the kick drum to jump out forward. Right. And we'll go sort of for a felt beater type thing. But usually we're looking for that hard side, um, tightening the, the kick drum. Deadening the kick drum with mm -hmm. pillows, blankets, the duvet from your, your bed, <laughs> any of those things. If uh, you, honey, where's the duvet? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it'll, I have a feeling it'll come back in three or four days, though. Um, <laughs> and it'll smell like a drummer. <laughs> exactly. But that's a really important thing with, with that. If you want that a tight, yeah. powerful kick drum, you've got to dampen both of those. Which heads. you could use on pop. You could use it on a ballad if it sits nicely with the bass. I would sound virtually every kind of music um, so, that you want to sound remotely contemporary. All right, so back in my day, uh -huh. again, let's call my day pre-1980, yeah. which was, I mean, it was the kind of classic rock yeah. era. In 1980, there was a massive shift in the sound. Yeah, progress. a lot of it, that was disco. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, disco woke us up to all kinds disco, of Disco, New Wave came, all right, of those things exactly. just really... Changed it, yeah. So, uh, gosh, who was the engineer on the Cars records? Uh, Roy Thomas Baker. There was a guy that would take like six kick drums mm -hmm. and, and sum them, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about in a minute. That's a whole other approach <laughs> to today's sounds. Okay, so that's kick drum. Let's talk about, and by the way, um, I can't remember, no, we talked about this off camera, jazz. Straight up normal jazz is is one of the few genres, in my opinion, that sounds you want it to sound like it sounds out in the room. Players mm -hmm. actually want to be close to each other. They want to look at each other. They yeah. will work with one head one side of the phones off. Um, sometimes they'll work with no headphones mm -hmm. at all. Um, that's where you want instruments to sound 
normal. <laughs> but for most other genres now, you don't. But yeah. So let's go back to the snare, um, old snare, the pre-1980 snares versus today. I mean, part, part of the big thing is some of the earlier snares, uh, they some of them would be a little thicker on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk the big fat thing with the sizzle on top. Arrangements were a lot different there. Um, so there was actually room, and I love those kinds of sounds. Boosh. You know, listen, Beck's, the album Sea Change by yeah. Beck is such a gorgeous example of, it's like one of the most beautiful, perfect 70s records ever okay. recorded from 2003 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but there was there was real estate for that. Because right. bass it sounds... It means real estate in the arrangement. Yeah, yeah, because even the bass sounds, the bass sound might be these flat wounds that sort of went boom, 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 boom. An acoustic guitar or thinner Telecaster guitars, and now records are so much more dense, mm-hmm. where you have big, huge bass sounds, and the guitars are trying to eat up a lot of real estate, and you've got two different layers of synths and all of those kinds of things. So a lot of times those super fat snares don't work as well, or what's sometimes even more accurate, if you put that kind of snare in, you don't notice how big and fat and cool right. sounding it is, because you have all of the. So and the if big you things. isolate, if you were to hit the solo button on the snare drum. Uh, for many of the pop records nowadays, it, it would sound atrocious to the guys who are my mm-hmm. age from my Jurassic period mm-hmm. because it doesn't sound like a snare drum. Yeah. I always tell people, um, I walked into Avatar Studio A in New York one time. Um, Tony Bon Jovi was nice enough to give me the control room of Studio A to edit something before I went to a mastering session. And Joe Perry was sitting out in the middle of the studio. The <laughs> studio was totally empty. And he had a snare drum and he was just sitting there going, because that room sounded so magical. It sounded like a record mm-hmm. just instantly. So I opened up. They had a couple of mics in the ceiling. I opened them up, and it was just like, I won't even tell you what it did to me. But uh, it was just astonishing. Well, now that sound ain't cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's heartbreaking to me. But yeah. So what's cool now? Well, I think the big thing, and, and this is something I'm thinking of doing with my, my driver's ed course at the Rally 2, just okay. talking about the differences of what the big successful records are doing versus us. Yeah. And I think the big thing we When can, you say versus us, are you I, throwing yourself no, in the Jurassic I, period? I'm, Come no, on. I'm throwing myself into, I mean, I've been lucky to be successful at this, but right. I still feel like every time I'm making a record, I'm struggling to like, you know, cause you know, I'm pretty good at what I do, but there's always guys and gals up above where I'm like, oh, I'm aspiring to make records as good as those people or to sell as many copies as those records. You could be, um, uh, What's his name? Uh, Chris Lord Alge. Yeah. And, and still have that feeling now. Yeah. But I think one of the big differences between, you know, stuff, well, Taxi's a great audience because you have such a diverse group of people and also people struggling to work in so many different genres. Right. And a lot of times, like, oh, yeah, I'm a bluegrass guy and you just focus on that, but an active Taxi member might be going from retro disco to rock to that's <laughs> a great point and all of those kinds yeah, of things they've got to be a jack of several trades because they're working in different genres mostly for um, instrumental stuff yeah. or film but one of the big things that people i think the mistake people make in terms of trying to be professional or big is they try to make things sound natural and balanced and they try to make things layered and complex mm-hmm. and neither of those are morally wrong but they're not. But that's not consistent with the majority of things that are very successful. And the difference between the big hit records, and this is, you know, in country, it's in hard rock, it's in, you know, Katy Perry or pink style pop, mm-hmm. is that stuff tends to be 
boldly sparse. Mm-hmm. It says, like, here's a couple elements, and we're cranking them up to 11, 12, 28. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a big difference because, you know, something like a piano, a nice, beautiful, lush piano sound, you know, maybe on a George Winston New Age record is beautiful, but that's never going to work on a Katy Perry style right. mix. You know, it's all you, about context. And those, even even like classic stuff from Elton John, like listen to El, Elton John records from the 70s. Super bright. Oh my Very God. Strident. Yeah. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. You think this piano centric, one of the great piano pop players right. of all time, that he would have this beautiful, but it's dink, dink, he, ding, ding. Well, that dink. was a good example of when things changed. He yeah. really, in that, he was five years ahead of yeah. everybody else's curve. I remember this before I. Yeah, I was listening to Elton John before I ever worked on a record, and I do remember thinking that piano sounds super bright. Mm-hmm. Then I saw him live on his first tour of the U.S. Uh, playing the Steinway in like a 3,000-seat classic theater in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and he was just beating the crap out of that Steinway. <laughs> and well, at one point, he got up and started playing it with his feet, and he said, F Mr. Steinway. <laughs> this was personally signed by Mr. Steinway, and Elton oh. said, F Mr. Steinway. Oh, but, but even the Beatles, I mean, they, they used what they called the tack piano, right. where they actually put thumbtacks into the felt, so it was metal hitting the metal strings. So making it more aggressive and more bright. Um, snare drums, again, something that's more aggressive. Uh, and I'm not saying go crazy with boosting. Boosting with EQ can get really dangerous quick. Right. There's usually cooler ways to it. To, to get there, subtractive EQ, but that's yes, a whole. Other, that's exactly. an episode in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, but it's the kind of thing where people think about. Okay, let's make a, a thin piano, and then let's actually make our kick and snare ridiculously forward. Right. Because if you listen to it, like on a lot of big pop records, the snare drum is actually louder than the lead vocal. It's actually a very common thing to actually have. And, and the snare drums don't have the big bottom. No. One of the things that is a truth nowadays is the layering and I was thinking about us having this conversation over the weekend and I realized so why do people layer why do they have seven snare drums mm-hmm. really it's just one one hit you know mm-hmm. why can't you just do it with an equalizer and a compressor mm-hmm. and be done with it maybe a little reverb and it's because they can yeah <laughs> and also to to be fair on this and it took me a while to let my ego go um, I'm pretty good at recording drums. I mean, I've been lucky to work with some of the best drummers yeah. in the world and all of that. And, and I grew up in an era where that was important. And and I, you know, I used to really shy away like to do any kind of sampling. Right. And it was like that that is a last resort. And you know, I'm good at this. I'm going to prove that I'm the greatest. And even if I mix something, and the drum sounds weren't very good, I'm such a great mixer for drums that I could get their really bad sounding drums to be. Not so bad. Yeah. But nobody dreams of their record coming out. And eh, that's so bad. Right. And I realized a few times that I'd actually done a disservice to my. Did you watch Curb My Artist? Yeah, some right before he walked up. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd done a disservice by letting my ego, as I'm this guy who's so awesome at drums, look how I can do this. Right. When a lot of times the sound that artists are going for isn't a real snare drum, isn't a real right. drum set. Well, that that's the world we live in now. Yeah. I mean, if you isolate, if you do a solo button on a mm-hmm. snare, I mean, they sound like tinfoil over a paper cut being, <laughs> being hit with a pencil. Uh-huh. That was the complete opposite of 
what I was taught back in the day yep. and what the industry went for, which was you wanted to sound like Joe Perry sitting in the middle of Studio A yeah. at Avatar. Yeah, and or, yeah. the thing is that's just not what a lot of, you know, artists aspire to. You know, the records they're dreaming of is this mix by Chris Lord Algie or Andy Wallace that has samples in there. Yeah. You know, listen to the kick drum on Nirvana's Nevermind. It never changes for the entire album. <laughs> I never <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> but... Uh, so that's a big thing. I just did a record. Um, it comes out like next week, I think. New single came up, but this kind of theatrical metal band called Guar. Oh yeah, and, uh, big heavy metal thing. I did and, that. You did that. And um, my whole thing on that, which people are digging a few detractors, is I really wanted it to sound like real drums. Yeah. And so I really wanted it to sound like here we are sitting in front of this great band. And uh, luckily, the response has been really good. I mean, I there are there were a few parts where I did supplement some things in for. Did you have samples. to wrestle with them over that sound, uh, no, or no, did we they want that as well? Yeah, we. I mean, we talked a lot about it. We, we did a lot of work in pre-production, yeah. kind of defining where we wanted this record to go and things like that, and I kind of brought my thing to the table. But that was a big thing, and especially because their previous record was really aggressively sampled, mm. and it's just such a... And, you know, which is its own thing and totally cool. But I wanted something. I was such. I'm just such a big fan of the players in that band. Yeah. I wanted it to feel like getting to sit in front and getting your butt kicked by, you know, this amazing hard rock band. So, going back to the the lonely solo soloed yeah. snare. Yeah. Um, when people will layer, they will go into a sample library yeah. and they layer multiple snares. Yeah. I've never done that. Yeah. Um, Aren't you asking for all kinds of issues like phase issues, EQ issues? I mean, it's like I don't understand why people will layer that many to make something sound like crap when you could just simply do it. <laughs> Pick one that sounds like crap. Um, it, it does sound like crap on its own. Yeah, it sounds good in the yeah, context exactly. of the record. It sounds yeah. modern and I've never, I've never gone that, but I know a lot of my friends who work like in R&B and stuff, and they'll yeah. get... These things where a snare drum will be 13 tracks. Yeah, that's what I'm up. talking about. It's, it's like never... more tracks, more snare tracks than songwriters. Which is yes, hard and to I've never understood that. <laughs> For me, if I'm using things like samples, I'm usually looking at what's what's lacking in it. So sometimes if a snare comes in that's too thuddy and dark, yeah. and I know it needs to be a little bit more modern, I'll you know bring in a sample that's bright, aggressive, and edgy. And just the opposite, if it's real thin and tinny, I'll bring in a sample that's fat, got fatness and body. It's rare that I'm just kind of completely replacing things. So what do we tell these guys watching the show if their stuff sounds like Michael Lasko engineered it in 1977? Uh -huh. uh, what would be the first thing you do? So far we've talked about the kick and the snare. Uh, is there a particular library that you would recommend that you know, you know, sounds great for really contemporary sounds? Should they learn how to layer before they learn how to compress? Do they need to care about drum miking, or is it a lost art that they'll never mm. use? Where do they start? <laughs> um, I would, I mean, the one I use, and a lot of people use uh, Stephen Slate Trigger. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty easy to use. Even the stock library uh, is almost all you would ever need. You could get a lot of other stuff. Um, but those kind of things are quick and easy, but I'm I hope the art of recording doesn't go away. I hope so, too. Yeah, because... It was so fun to learn. It was. You know? And um, and it still comes as a big part of it. Because, you know, we still have... Even if we supplement or replace, 
you know, having beautiful overheads is oh, such a, an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, and also trends trends shift back and forth. It, Do you think it'll ever go back to sounding like 1976, you know, au naturel again? I mean, I guess... I, I think it's... It, more, it could, you know. It, I think it's not unrealistic to think it might. Just because, you know, pendulums kind of swing, and I think they swing a little too slow now, in my own personal yeah. bias. But you know, when everything gets to be so so processed and so faked and all of that, that there'll be, you know, there's likely to be a reactionary thing. You know, a great example of that, Gated Reverb. Mm -hmm. Remember uh, Phil Collins, uh, it probably started somewhat with the cars, then Phil Collins really brought it to the fore in the, what, 1983, 84, yeah. 85 era. Yeah. Everybody had gated reverb on everything. Yeah. And, and now, now the so Phil much. Collins thing is actually gated room mics. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> Which I think might even be from that same. Oh, uh, from room. Avatar? Yes, Probably. from Avatar. I, I, it was originally the power station. Yeah. And, and yeah. by the way, did you know that Berkeley bought it? Yes. And did you know that there is a clone of Avatar Studio A in Connecticut? Wow. Somebody got the plans from That's Tony awesome. Bonjovi and exactly, I mean, to the square inch replicated mm -hmm. that place. So you and I need to do a road trip to Connecticut. Yes. <laughs> that was the best sounding room in anywhere. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's, uh, and Hugh Padgham is the guy who kind of created that sound. Yeah. Uh, so Phil Collins gets all the credit, but Hugh Padgham actually created it for XTC, I think, originally. But, um, but the thing about that kind of gated reverbs, uh, and when people think about gated reverbs, they're actually talking a lot about that non, what's actually more like nonlinear reverbs, mm -hmm. that Right. And driving over here, listening to KLS, the song from the cars came by. Which and, one? Was it? So who's going to drive you home? Might have been that. Okay. Right. So that very nonlinear, where almost that was almost like a white noise kind of thing, right. was a very prominent thing for part of the 80s. And he, speaking of nonlinear, he means that it just shuts down. Yeah. It, there is no trail off. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like and it sounds a second after, it's. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds nothing like a room or a hall right. or a bathroom. It's just this weird burst of white noise kind of thing. Right. Um, but yeah, one you mentioned reverb lengths. I mean, that's a thing that changes. A lot as Let, well. Let's, uh, let's, okay, we've done kick and snare. Let's do tom-toms and overheads and mm -hmm. then move on to reverbs because reverbs are so relevant uh, when we're talking about drums. So tom-toms, um, we went to that period where we wanted everything to sound au naturel. Mm -hmm. um, and then right around uh, the Phil Collins era, um, mm -hmm. wanted them to sound very roomy and truncated. Mm -hmm. um, and also the disco era brought in the, uh, the famous, only somebody who's old would know this, mm. the syndrome. So people got away from the syndrome pretty quickly. Yeah. That lasted for about two years. And, but there's a sound of real drums that's almost like a hybrid of syndromes and real drums mm -hmm. that were these, I, I thought, really great sounding tom-toms uh, at some point. But now... Not so much. So what are people doing with tom-toms? They're mostly and, fake. And pop records today. They're mostly fake. I, uh, synthesized or sampled? Sampled. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, most of the they time, started out real. Yeah. And what did they do to make them sound so... <laughs> yeah, what they, they don't sound like a real tom-tom to me. Yeah. Um, it really generally, in most big contemporary records, have the toms are either supplemented or replaced with samples. Mm -hmm. And something like Stephen Slate Trigger, Drumagog is another program, and there's a few others that can do it as well. And so essentially, it's um, 
it's just so common and kind of almost stupidly easy uh, to go in and create a goo 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 goo. Right. Um, Thank you, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, they tend to be a little brighter. Yeah. <laughs> on that. Um, but it's part of that being so easy, but also I'm, I'll sound like a snotty old guy for a sec. Is, okay. um, You're amongst friends. <laughs> um, people don't know how to, the ability to actually tune drums oh, my gosh. Uh, or, or engineers to and producers to go in and have that fight with the drummer to get the drums to sound right uh, is an art. <laughs> it is always a fight. And I've, <laughs> I've spent a lifetime learning how to win that fight. Yeah. <laughs> like you gets, walk out there and the drummer immediately gives you the what do you think you could possibly know better than me about yeah. this drum it, It's a little easier for me just because some of my client base is some of the best drummers in the world. Right. So it's a little easier than it was when I was just the guy in the neighborhood who worked at the studio. Right. <laughs> but um, but a big thing, too, is people people don't spend the time to get drums to sound like they want them to sound on the record. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the big thing. And if Why I can, bother? And if I can throw one thing out, oh, the snare drums that go ding, ding, ding. Yeah, it's just it's. Are you talking like a piccolo snare with no uh, damping on it? Yeah. Okay. Or or any virtually any kind of snare, but with mm -hmm. long length and sustain. Yeah. That is just the thing that you do to immediately throw your track into the amateur bin. <laughs> uh, and it, it's such a simple thing to fix, mm -hmm. but something that so many drummers battle for. They just they fight so hard to have a really amateur sounding record. And uh, and it's so easy, like a piece of moon gel to throw your wallet on the snare drum can just make it sound like your budget tripled. Um, I don't know if I've ever told anybody this on Taxi TV or not. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, working on the Tusk record, mm -hmm. took time off to go work at Lindsey Buckingham's home studio. They were working at the Village Recorder, I believe, in Studio D, and I was out here working on a record. I needed, again, needed a control room for something. So mm -hmm. the guys at Village said, sure, go ahead, duck in there. So I went in there, and the drum kit was out in the room. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's no engineer alive. It's not going to go look at a yes. with my drum kit, <laughs> yes. right? And, and all the EQ on the console. Yep. So you know what they used to damp the tom-toms, which was mm -hmm. brilliant. I immediately stole and it worked great take a feminine napkin mm -hmm. and you put a quarter or a half dollar in there, bend, fold it over and then take a piece of gaffer's tape and make like a little hinge from yeah. the rim of the drum to the feminine napkin yeah. that's weighted. That way when you hit the drum, here I'll give you a demo, mm -hmm. you hit the drum, the feminine napkin lifts off by, is it inertia maybe? Mm -hmm. Makes it go boo and then falls back down yeah. because of the weight. Mm -hmm. So you get just enough. It's basically like a trampoline. It's a membrane yeah. that's just pushing right. up against it. Yeah. yeah, so you get this little moment of ring yep. to get the tone, but then shuts it down yeah. and it worked beautifully. So if I can throw out one easy thing here, if you record drums. Does it use a feminine napkin? I mean, it is good even for floor tones. Sorry, I'm just trying to stick because the they thing. actually are. They actually come with adhesive, which helps too. Oh, okay. Um, to get technical on it, <laughs> um, but duct tape and toilet paper and moon gels and things. But if you want to make your mixing life easier and your stuff to sound more pro, shorten the length of the drums in the room. It is the easiest thing to do to make such a massive impact on getting your drums to sound like. Hey, your buddy did a pretty good job on your demo tape. 
to why is it that people love that ringy like it hurts to be in a room with that drummer it literally hurts your yeah. ears and you're right it just bounces off of everything and, and it the, sucks the weird thing about it though is it's something that pe some people who love that usually like love it in the room mm. and it's fun to play you know ding 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 it's great but those same people who often fight to get you know no that's the sound i gotta have it to ring are the same people in the mix time really upset that their drums aren't going Right. It's like, well, remember that fight we had where you want to take me in the parking lot and beat me up because I was messing with your drum sound so much? Yeah. So that's kind of the neurosis, and we all we all do it. I'm a guitar player. Guitar players do the same thing, but with with drummers is so many of them have this passion to get their drums to sound one way in the room while they play play that is completely disconnected from how they want it to sound in the final mix. Okay. And it's a producer and engineer's job to go in and have that fight. And if you don't, you're just, you know, slacking off. And it's tough because when you're having that fight or any of the big fights, like, you know, my Marshall stack doesn't sound yeah. in this room <laughs> like it does on stage, yeah. you're risking your gig. Yeah. I actually, I did the, um, I've got uh, I've got this online drum course thing I did. And the whole first chunk of it is how to win the fight with a drummer. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's so important. And we're kind of joking about it, but it is really serious. And, oh, that's Like, if you're the producer or you're, or you're hired to be the engineer, I, I know some people who just sort of go, well, I don't know, it's this thing. And at the end of the day, it's the artist's records, not yours. So at the right. end of the day, they can veto anything. But it's your job to step up and go, hey, this is going to create problems. This is, you know, and I even had to sort of wrestle back and forth with some pretty, like, big-name people. And then yeah. you have to have the shootout, which yeah. sucks a couple hours of time yeah. because you have to prove your point by showing them yeah. A, B, and yeah. The, the one, the one easy way to kind of win that, especially with a, you know, somebody who's not an icon, icon or whatever, say, okay, bring me records in your genre that have a snare drum like that, or kick drum or anything that were commercially successful. <laughs> and and then, well, what about this? Nope. Listen to that. Nope. What about Rush? No. What about Dave Matthews Band? What about Madonna? What about? Nope. 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 What about Metallica St. Anger? Oh, okay, that one. <laughs> <laughs> there was a drummer named Stan Kipper. I worked on, uh, remember, I got a brand new pair of roller skates, Melanie? I worked on a double live album with her where we did it live in the studio, and Stan Kipper was the drummer, and I will never, ever forget. I was young. I was probably 25. He walked out in the room, and I they'd gone out to dinner, and I was tuning his drums. Oh, my God. I, I really thought he was going to physically hurt me because I was touching his drums. And I said, look, your drums didn't sound good. You should tune them. Try one, four, five. Try any any intervals that make it sound pretty, you know. Mm -hmm. He just said, no, this is what I said. Sorry, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I'm the engineer. If you don't like it, yeah. if everybody else in the room doesn't like it, then I'll quit. You can yeah. go get another engineer. Of course, they all loved it. I was mm -hmm. a hero. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing I realized again, having some of these arguments with like icons or whatever yeah. and you're thinking oh god who am i and i think okay well this guy's been on the cover of xy magazine a bunch but i've made a couple hundred more records than he has yeah. and I've, kind of, I've mixed a couple thousand more songs so i've seen the problems and it's that's the thing if you're producing engineering it's your job to step up to the plate and hopefully you can do it in a way that's constructive and good vibes and all of that <laughs> but i think you know producers and engineers who just sit on their hands kind of afraid to get into it are really abdicating their job. But that's what they're afraid of is having somebody else abdicate their job for them. It's like, <laughs> you're wrong, you're fired, we'll get another, you come and show up to the studio the next day and they change the lock. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
Could happen. <laughs> it could. Uh, okay, so let's talk about reverb now because we, we've talked about the drum kit. Um, what about reverb has changed? Define old reverb and then tell them how it's changed. Mm, well, old reverb was having reverb, <laughs> and then it changed by not having reverb. Okay. Well, what was the time <laughs> frame for not having reverb? Um, well, reverb was actually huge. I mean, through probably around 80, 81 is where it started to sneak in. And really throughout the 80s, reverb was a member of the band. Mm -hmm. And I don't even say that in a sarcastic kind of way. Like, the sound of the reverb was a really integral part of the artistic statement of that record. Oh, yeah. We got to tune that plate. Yeah. <laughs> and all of those things. And it, it played a very prominent, prominent role in it. Um, but then, basically, by the beginning of the 90s, uh, with grunge and sort of pop, you know, yeah. punk becoming a little mainstream, it started to, to dry up. Oh, uh, no pun intended? Or was that yeah. pun intended? Well... It was fact to fact, yeah. But I mean, even listen to like the great way to hear it is listen to the first three Pearl Jam records, right? And just watch you know, the first one is just drenched and beautiful, and it's just got a little drier on the next one, and then really dry by the third one. And one of the things people don't realize, yeah, how many huge records have no reverb at all? Yeah, like by the mid '90s, reverb was almost a, a, a joke. Yeah, I mean, if an engineer added reverb to something, everybody in the room would. Yeah, and you, what the hell? you know, and there's still times you wanted to do it, but you kind of snuck it in a way where it says, "I want to create a little sense of space or blend or connect these two things," but not in a way that it was a prominent feature. And um, so. For the folks who are using digital reverb at home in their home studio, if their inclination is to use, you know, three and a half second decay mm -hmm. on a standard plate reverb sound with a 75 millisecond or 125 millisecond mm -hmm. pre-delay, <laughs> yeah. you are living in the disco era. Yeah. But you still even find, like, some of the records Sting was doing in the 90s still were pretty drenched in reverb. Yeah, but he was also... <laughs> Yeah. A little bit of a joke during that period. Yeah. I mean, sorry if I'm offending any Sting fans. <laughs> I, I did go to a Sting concert once. Um, but he was not cool during that period. Yeah, so at least he, not with the cool kids or something. Maybe. Right, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> is his music was like considered adult contemporary. Yeah. It's uh -huh. like my mom would listen to yeah. that. But I mean, like if you listen, like uh, you know, the last record from the Dixie Chicks yeah. has no reverb at all, bone dry. Yeah. You know, like a big Katy Perry thing, you know, last Friday night, boom, bone dry. And, uh, you know, almost every Red Hot Chili Peppers record, the last one they snuck in some reverb, but for the 20 years before that, didn't have any. So a lot of people make the mistake of like, okay, now I'm going to try and make it pro, so i got to start pouring on the sauce. Right. And Especially vocals. Yeah, and that. not realizing that that's actually one of the things that's just flying the flag, like, oh, yep, <laughs> amateur. And not to say you shouldn't do it if that's, where your art and creativity wants to push you. But in a situation like a taxi member who might be pushing something to fit a listing of a specific genre, right. you know, I, I, hear, I get to hear a lot of people's music at the rally, and that's something that's so common. Like, wow, you just missed the, you missed it on uh, uh, the just, reverb use. Um, the rally, by the way, November 2nd through the 5th in Los Angeles. Do you know we got... Uh, like 220 more people signed up for the rally just over this past weekend. Nice. Um, the hotel rooms have been sold out. The cheap hotel rooms sold out a while ago. But while we're here, I have to remember, 
to tell you guys to hit the subscribe button because now that we're on YouTube, you should really be a subscriber. And because Ronan's here, like us. And if you're really nice, I'll come <laughs> over and share my olives. <laughs> Nothing like a good Italian olive, I always say, every chance I get. All right, so reverb. Um, so they shouldn't, uh, I'm going to pull out a big word, they shouldn't eschew reverb altogether. Exactly. Um, so how do you take reverb and use it judiciously in the context of modern sounding okay. records? And then I just, Mojo Bone just wrote, Bruce Swedeen famously said, compression is for kids. Oh, I've got some comments on that. Okay. Um, so, uh, God bless Bruce. But um, So anyway, part of it is to, there's two things. One is look at reverb that's appropriate for the genre or the tempo. And, you know, ooh. oh, I thought that was thunder. No, we don't get thunder. <laughs> um, uh, tempo, really important. Uh, tell them why matching reverb with the tempo is important. Well, I'm, I'm not one of those guys who tries to get it to be exactly a quarter note or anything like that. But if you're working on a ballad, there's room for it to decay. But if you're... Right. It, it just starts to create a drone. Yeah. And almost any time you create drones that just go on and on in a mix, usually your mix is starting to collapse this way, this way. That's and, the same and, and, they be, and they create phase anomalies because yeah. the drone is shifting all over because of the random nature of reverb, yeah. all that crap. Yeah. And so, and you don't really get a sense of it ever decaying, so you don't get a sense of that space. Right. So, yeah, other than maybe a swimming pool. Exactly. Exactly. So, faster tempo tunes, you know, you want to shorten it up. Uh, there's a little, if you want it to be longer, there's more room to do that in a ballad. But one of the big things, too, is people will just send something out to a reverb or slap on the plug-in and just pull it up, go, okay, there's the big room. It's done. Right. And the problem is that reverb comes out this big, and there's not room for that. So one of the things, I can't, I can't remember the last time I have not EQ'd a reverb return. Really? Literally, I can't. I can't How remember. much time do you spend doing that? Because I used to watch my peers back in the day, and they, I would see dollar signs coming out of their butts <laughs> because they would spend like four hours, you um, know, tuning the plate, adjusting the decay on the plates. These were actual EMT plates, yeah. like steel <laughs> plates, where you would adjust the distance between the transducer and the pickup. Uh, and that would affect how long the decay was. But then they would, like, okay, uh, roll off bottom. You don't want a bunch of swimmy bottom mm -hmm. on a steel plate. But then they would sit there, um, like, fine-tuning, like, you know, somewhere up around 7, 8K. And I could just see the dollar signs, like, flying around the room going, you didn't really need to do that. So how much time... How many dollar signs fly out of your butt when you're tuning a reverb? <laughs> no, not that many. I'm, I'm fast at it. I mean, okay. literally... Um, is it something that, and I'm only being sarcastic and facetious about this, but is it something that people should learn? Is there a craft to EQing reverb that they should know about? Yes, you work on it, but I can tell you a couple things that are virtually happen on almost every reverb I ever do. Yeah. I'm always cutting off the bottom and cutting off the top. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then cutting up where it gets, there's too much buildup in the middle. Because mm -hmm. if you leave too much bottom on a reverb, it just turns into this sort of low soup. You start to lose definition and clarity of the bass drum, uh, the notes the bass player is playing, all that kind of low frequency stuff. Yeah. And powerful bass is generally articulate bass. Mm -hmm. uh, Ooh, write that down. Powerful <laughs> bass is articulate. That's a 
Well, really, that should be the name of your next book. All right. <laughs> Powerful bases are too. I'll give you, give you a royalties for that. Um, but I'm, also chopping off the top on almost any reverb. I'm, I'm curious why, because I never did that. It, well, a different era. Because um, in the 80s, and you, you started saw it sneaking in with disco and stuff, the sizzle of the reverb Man. was exciting. You know, yeah, sibilance, and, ah, and that really drew your ear to it. But like I said, in the 80s, the reverb was a member of the band, <laughs> and you wanted it to be prominent. But in, you know, mid-90s on through today, where generally reverb wants to be more of a support kind of thing. It has snuck back in from yeah. the super dry era. But yeah, it's, it's not, definitely sneaking uh, back in. Yeah. Um, but if you want to, um, but the real brightness of a reverb, where sibilance, the top of cymbals, the shimmer of guitars, is where our ears are really drawn to reverb. So we have a really bright reverb on a vocal and sing, sis. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, what's with all that reverb? Right. If we go in and low-pass filter, fancy name for cutting the high end off, um, and remove that, all of a sudden, we get the sing. The suh yeah. is clear, but there's a So it allows us to That's use right. reverb to create that space to blend something back but without into a track. your focus. Yeah. We I, I look, always say, yeah. if, if, uh, regarding film and TV music, in most cases, if your music is so good, that the composition attracts the viewer's attention, then you've failed at your job of being <laughs> the support system. Yeah. So you're making the same analogy with yeah. reverb, that mm -hmm. if the top end is so bright that you notice the reverb, mm -hmm. you've lost the song. Yeah. Or lost everything else that makes up, yeah, yeah. interesting. And again, sometimes that's appropriate, but usually, but it's not contemporary mm -hmm. of the last couple decades. Okay. Uh, so I'm almost always chopping the top and the bottom off with high and low pass filters with very gradual, like 60 dB per octave. There's a little, you can write that one down, it's more important. Yeah. So yeah, use like 60 dB per octave, high pass and low pass filters. And then really finding, this thing is reverbs are a multiplier. Mm -hmm. And they'll multiply frequencies, and a lot of times on the main track you've gone in, whether it's a vocal or a snare drum, to oh, there's a little too much buildup of that, so let me pull that out, you pull that out on the track, then everything gets sent to the reverb and multiplies again. So a lot of times I'm going in and maybe, you know, like 500 hertz on a snare drum, if I pulled out some boxiness or squawkiness, I might have to go do that again on the reverb, just so, because it's going to multiply right. those frequencies that I took away. You know, what he's talking about right now is so critical. For those of you who have this deep sense of frustration that my stuff doesn't sound like records, what you're talking about right now is an easy thing to do that nuances and finesses a record to sounding pro, mm -hmm. a yeah. recording to sound pro. Yeah. Uh, that's the stuff that most people, they, they get so enraptured by the decay, the linear decay of a room reverb or a plate reverb, something that's got that ah. And they just sit there going, ooh, I can't believe this comes out of that cute little box that sounds so good, but they don't notice the 500 hertz banging around the snare drum mm -hmm. making it sound tubby again, yeah. or the guitar. Making it, yeah, brilliant. Thank you. We're done. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, drip some more gold out of that mouth. Okay, well, I just have to respond to the thing where Bruce Swedian says that compression <laughs> is for kids. <laughs> now you've really gone and done it, Mojo. <laughs> yes, well, and thank you for that, because it's a big lead-up. i got to talk to Angel about this, but I, 
Uh, Sunday morning, I'm in She's going to hurt you. Yeah, she's so Sunday. locked in on the titles. Oh, okay. shoot. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's all right. You've got like 40 hours before we okay. catch it in stone. But I, the thing I want to do in the theater, I think Sunday morning in the theater, is basically you love compression and here's how to use it. Okay. <laughs> because compression, people who don't love compression just have really weird, freaky tastes. We all love compression. I it's, love compression. And... And virtually everybody loves compression, except for kind of strange things, uh, you know. And it's okay that there's weird fringe people. That's I like love... saying, I mean, not loving compression is like not loving Oreos. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Who doesn't love compression? Yeah, and you may say I'm avo I'm avoiding Oreos for, you know, some reason or another, but you still we all love it. Yeah. But the big problem is that um, things that aren't compressed sound amateur right you know and people will say things that aren't compressed don't sound dynamic which of course is technically as incorrect as you can get um, but the thing about that people don't realize about compression is compression is just one of our most insanely powerful creative tools uh, when recording and mixing mm -hmm. you know I can take something I can change the feel of a drummer's groove with compression I can push an instrument back into the mix I can pull it forward into a mix. I can push something into distortion. It's, People I, think it's a dirty word, though. It's like, ooh, you use compression. But that's uh, like I, saying, I, like, oh, you breathe oxygen. Ooh. I, I know some big <laughs> engineers that still um, love to cut stuff, I mean, dry, like no EQ, and mm -hmm. if they can avoid it, no compression going to tape. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I don't I'm, EQ a whole lot when I, yeah. I'm a kind of a mic placement guy and like Which tweak the amp and the drums. It should always start kind of there, yes. But. but the truth is, the idea that compression is somehow, oh, that's kids thing or something like that. It's like, well, if that's kids thing, then I guarantee you, I would put money on it that if we went to the top hundred tracks on Billboard right now, that at least, let's say, a hundred of those are really compressed. <laughs> yeah. How many? Uh, let's see. Yeah, somewhere. 100% of 100. Yeah, 100, give or take yeah. 0%. We'll have a lot of compression. I mean, yeah. The Beatles, Sgt. Peppers. I mean, that's a oh super God. compressed record. You can hear the symbols of them. Just, oh, by the way, I haven't seen you. Hang on, we'll be right back. Um, <laughs> the Beatles. Um, <laughs> the Beatles Atmos mix. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I got to hear that. In, oh, my theater. First couple songs, I'm like, sounds really good. Okay, great. Uh -huh. And they turned out the lights. Um, and, and then by third song, I'm going, oh, that sounds pretty good. By the end of it, I'm going, thank God I got invited to this thing. Uh -huh. and it sounded amazing. You could literally feel like Paul was four feet in front of wow. you and you could touch the strings on his bass. Wow. And it's, it didn't sound not like the Beatles. Mm -hmm. It just sounded like you were in the room with the Beatles wow. when they made the record. Nice. It was something. Anyway, back to our regular program. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, people have this crazy idea that, oh, compression, oh, you'll squash the life out of something. And it's so opposite because yeah. compression actually brings out the life. It actually brings, if you do it well, and you can right. watch compression. But it, Which you will for the first year you're trying it. Yeah, but, um, but it brings out character. It brings out detail. I mean, for me, a vocal sounds in a mix sounds so much more emotional and powerful, heavily compressed than dynamic. And one of the big things is something as simple as like if we sing cat, well the the T in cat, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that if it's dynamic in a mix with guitars and synths, it comes out to cat. 
we, we yeah. totally lost that. And um, and also, not only do we get the word cat at the end, but at the end of words is where we do a lot of things where that R&B singer might go cat, you know, that moaning kind of stuff, or the heavy metal singer might go cat, and it's those like little low-level details when you bring them up. Uh, that you know, bring up the <laughs> Did character. Did hit the talkback button in the microphone, guy. I needed to sound like. <coughs> yeah, give me a little more. Uh. That was awesome. <laughs> I've got my whole sample set. If they didn't do it, I was just. Uh, I could just put that in. <laughs> you know, uh, let's go back to Bruce uh, Swedeen for a second. Um, when I was at Westlake Studios about a month ago, and after we finished up doing our taxi TV. Um, they whipped out some of their old masters and uh, they played uh, one of the vocals solo from a Michael Jackson record. Mm -hmm. Bruce, if you're talking about not, he's lying. <laughs> I'm calling you out because, man, that vocal was compressed. Yeah. It, it, it was so compressed. Yeah, I've never heard a Michael Jackson record that wasn't very compressed. Well, I, mean, there were, I mean, it was all like right there, you know, very compressed. And one thing just on that, too, is just one of the retorts comes like, well, why don't you just use, you know, if you're a real pro, you just use automation and wouldn't rely on those kids' tools or whatever. It's like, um, there's two things about that. One is, there's things we can do with compression that you cannot do with automation. Yeah. Unless you wanted to, you probably could if you wanted to spend about three weeks getting like, the per track. cat. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, but when you put it in perspective, like some of the top mixers in the world, like Chris Lord Algae, is probably the most successful mixer to ever walk planet Earth. Uh, you know, Bob Clearmountain, the title of superstar mixer didn't exist before Bob right. Clearmountain. Those guys are knocking out two or three songs a day. So how much time do you think they're in going automating? So, so the biggest, most successful mixers in the history of recorded music. And that's what people want to sound like. Yeah, are, are doing that. So it doesn't mean it's the only way to do it, but you certainly can't be dismissive of the way that the most successful people on planet Earth are doing it. <laughs> By the way, the rock star is ordered for the road. <laughs> um, let's move on to, let's see, we've talked about drums, we've talked about reverb. Let's talk about bass, the most misunderstood, um, and for me personally, the most difficult thing to make myself happy with as I was recording. Old basses sounded like, fill in the blank, please. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. <laughs> they were shorter, uh, <laughs> generally. And, and new basses, modern contemporary sounding basses. Are brighter and have more sustain, as a general rule. And um, back in my day, about as much effort as you would put, you you would do a direct box on the bass, and you might even run it into an amp and put a mic like a, a 57 right up in the grill, and maybe an 87 six or eight feet or even 10 feet. A low E bass sine wave, I believe, is 33 feet. That's probably about right. Yeah, the yeah. low fundamental of that. Yeah, is probably before about, it yeah. fully. Uh, not masticates, that's a bad word for it. <laughs> Completes a cycle. Thank you. So 33 feet. So yeah. you could actually have a microphone in a place where you are canceling, phase canceling the the efficacy of, of the sine wave of the bass by misplacing a distant mm -hmm. mic. But that's what we would do. You would get the room mic, mix it with the direct, and some variation thereof combined with compression and a little EQ, add a little bit between maybe 60 hertz and 100 hertz, mm -hmm. maybe add a little bit 2.5K to give it a little pluck, a little yep. definition with the fingers, and you were done. Nowadays, it's like three bases, six layers of keyboard bass. I don't get it, but it does sound good. So can you 
enlighten us. I, I can do my best. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the, the big thing about bass and getting bass to sound great, um, yeah. one, you got to compress it. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the most important thing you can do to get your bass to sound great is what you do to the guitar, the drum overheads, the keyboards, piano, mandolins, and all of that. So the best way to get basses to sound great is give them room <laughs> to move and breathe. And that's an arrangement issue. Yeah, or an EQ issue. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I cut, I, I, I can't think of a record, certainly not in the last decade or decade and a half, that I haven't cut most of the low end off the guitars. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't cut large amounts off the piano, uh, assuming these aren't sort of solo piano or <laughs> things right. like that. But um, if you don't need it, lose it. Yeah. So and and people are kind of surprised, like uh, how high you can go. So I'll I'll high pass uh, filter things with like six dB per octave. You write that one down. Um, <laughs> That's his favorite thing. Um, yeah. Trust me on that. Just trust me. Um, but even bringing guitars up and going as high as something like people would think, wait, three, four hundred hertz. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's just fine. Um, on guitars, certainly like big rock riff guitars, you may maybe want to be less aggressive, but guitars that sort of fit into an ensemble, certainly anything kind of contemporary country or pop or things like you're that. You're talking electric guitars at the moment, or are you talking Both. acoustic? Both, okay. definitely. Uh, maybe even more on acoustic. Um, and when you start to clear out that real estate, the bass, you start to actually hear not only the tone, but the notes of it, passing tones that the player might play. All of those things just start to pop out, uh, and if you solo those guitars or those piano by themselves, they'll like, oh man, those sound, you know, so tinny and like garbage. Right. You drop the bass back in, and especially if it's the kind of bass that doesn't leave a lot of space, the doom, 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 where it's always going, that will actually become part of the guitars, and your guitars right. and pianos will sound rich and full by virtue of having that bass in there. People listen too much in solo. Yeah. Uh, and that's not really a rookie mistake. I did it, you know, after I kind of earned my stripes as a mm -hmm. real engineer and got to be first engineer on real records. I would, I was still guilty of that, and I tended to do it more during mixes than I did um, recording. But listening in solo, if you optimize the sound to make everything sound rich. And, and stellar on its own, you put it together in its um, mucky soup. Yeah, if every if all your individual tracks sound big and full, your mix doesn't. Right. Um, yeah. But one thing you guys can do it um, in your own thing. Just take up a mix that you finish, you think is good, and just mute the bass. Like, listen to your whole mix and just mute the bass. Mm -hmm. And don't care about what the bass sound is doing while well, it's turning off. But listen how it changes every other element. Right. So listen how listen advice. how the guitars change. Listen how the voice changed. Uh, and then you know if you're working in the DAW, do a save as Ronan's dumb ideas mix or something like that, and go in and do this aggressive you know aggressive high pass filtering 6 dB per octave. Um, and, uh, <laughs> like cut the low end off the guitars, the keyboards, even the lead vocal. Right. Um, and and then do that trick with the bass again. And listen how oh, those instruments transform. And also just go onto Spotify or your favorite way to listen to music and listen how tiny the vocals are on almost every hit record. You know, we talked about Pearl Jam earlier. I mean, when we think of um, Eddie Vedder, who's got the beautiful, rich yeah. baritone and love his voice, 
but really listen to a record. I'm like, oh my God, his voice is like this. <laughs> but you can shut your eyes and see where it is in the mix. Uh huh. Yes, but you still, because it's in there with bass and guitars, we still get a sense of that rich baritone yeah. and things like that. Versus, had they kept the whole range of it, his voice might have shifted into feeling a little bit muddier. How do you explain phase cancellation? Because a lot of what you're talking about ultimately is the is phase relationships yeah. between you know, it's cancellation. Uh -huh. the, the a certain note in a bass will cancel out a certain note in a baritone voice. It took me a while to understand that, and looking at phase meters will not help. Yeah. The mono button, by the way, for stereo stuff. Do they even bother putting mono buttons on like inexpensive consoles anymore? Well, they, I mean, usually, I mean, a lot of times if you've got a little monitor controller, they'll have right. a mono button on there. Because that's really important. I don't think a lot of people are taught that anymore yeah. because they're largely self-taught at home. Yeah. But especially with drums, hit the mono button. Yeah. Or stereo guitars. Well, I mean, phase is such a huge thing, and I wish we had the time, but, you know, I, I do six-day recording boot camps. Yeah. And 80% of day one is phase. Wow. Because it's... And and almost the entirety of That's day impressive. and almost the entirety of day two is compression. If you understand phase yeah. and compression, you've just do the people that take these courses know anything about engineering when they walk in? Yeah, or, yeah, or you have to have some okay. some level of experience. Right, so it's not yeah. one hundred and one. No, it's I, no, like it's not one hundred and one. Yeah, okay. yeah, or two hundred and one or something. But um, but uh, yeah, and I have a huge range, but but that's the whole thing because phase is everything. You know, our EQs are just phase distortion boxes. <laughs> the problems in our room while we monitor are phase distortion. Yeah. The, the, you know, the problems of why does my snare drum sound great when I solo it and it sounds like crap with all the other mics, that's all phase. Yeah. And uh, so all of these things, like phase is part of like everything we deal with in recording and people don't pay attention to it. It's You have to understand it from a physics perspective and then understand how that translates into sound. Yeah. yeah, you have to be able to hear, you know, yeah. hear it when it's good, when it's working for you, and hear yeah. it when it's not. And yeah. that takes ear training. That yeah. just and takes you can, time. You can sort of get by. I mean, I, I've known like guitar players who are in bands I really like, and you said, hey, can you point to the G note on your low <laughs> E string? Like, yeah. And they're like, is that the fat string? You know, they literally don't know what the notes on their guitar, but they right. still manage to actually have really cool bands. And it's the same sort of thing. You could stumble into uh, making some good recordings or mixes without understanding phase, but it's mission critical. Like if you want to advance to the next level or really get control. Do you think guys like Jeff Emmerich back in the days, you know, the early days of the Beatles? Uh, I wonder. I, mean, I guess they did because I remember yes. there was a, a, a book put out by the RIAA. It was like a Recording yeah. 101 book by Jeffrey Reinstein, I think mm -hmm. was his name. It was probably the first book on recording. And that book spent a lot of time talking about phase. Mm -hmm. And that book was probably written in the 60s or 70s. There's some water over there. If you okay, thank you. Um, okay, so... By the way, the whole 6 dB per octave yeah. uh, on your high-pass filters is phase-related. The yeah. reason you want to do that is because of the differences in phase versus 24 dB per octave. So... Um, I'm sorry, we're getting we, a little too geeky and techy. Uh, how much time? We got some time. I, okay. I want to give these guys 15 minutes to ask questions. Okay. So let's whip through the next couple things, which is guitar sounds of the past versus guitar sounds. That was a great sound. Yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, guitar sounds of the past versus guitar sounds today. Let's uh, let's talk about electrics. And of course, you know what? This is almost 
too much to go into because it depends. Are you talking about? Uh, let's talk about guitar sounds for pop records. Yes, and I can I can even kind of go in general on that, and that's good because somebody said talk about guitars. Okay, so we'll do a little we bit of this. Um, the challenge now is that is the desire to have huge guitar sounds um, has really sort of grown over the last couple decades. I'm sh kind of shocked by that because so much emphasis is put on synthesizers mm -hmm. and pads and everything. But go ahead. Sorry. But um, and I would say in straight up pop, if we're doing you know you know Pink doing a dance tune or something like that, but you know in rock and stuff like that. There's the desire to have these giant, huge guitar sounds, and giant anything in a mix goes to war with everything else. Mm -hmm. So giant snare drums go to war with guitars. Giant guitars go to war with snare drums. And we have these guitars that are much more saturated um, and you know are coming in with much more low end and things like that. And they don't really have a... It's much more challenging uh, to make those work. And so... That's one of the reasons why guitar, you know, rock bands and stuff, or rock pop, the guitars feel so much further back. So in, you know, back in our day, um, but, you know, even like the 80s and 90s, guitars would be real forward and prominent. Yeah. Uh, and now guitars are a submissive instrument. Even in your hard rock, especially in like hard rock and metal, guitars are very submissive instruments to kick and snare samples. Okay. Because they're really high gain. Um, and they kind of have these huge splatter sounds. Yeah. Uh, versus even, you know, the great hair metal records. You know, Motley Crue records had fairly clean. Sorry, I'm getting irradiated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but Motley Crue records had fairly clean, fairly bright guitars. Mm -hmm. ACDC guitars are like completely clean uh, and bright. And so. I was just listening to Thin Lizzy at lunch yesterday. These kind of like, yeah, a little bit distorted, but you they popped forward. Yeah. And uh, and the push for much higher gain guitars and much bigger, and also the the big shift to getting that gain from digital modelers is a huge thing that pushes guitars back uh, into a mix. How 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 many people? What percentage of overall pro studio pro engineers? are using modeling technology these days? Is it as rampant as I would imagine that it is? Because it's just easier than moving amps and microphones and all that stuff? Yes, a bunch. I mean, I couldn't give you a number that would make any sense. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still in the move a mic in front of a amp camp. Uh, <laughs> one is I, I love it, but also I think it's better. And truth is, if this modeling business equals or surpasses that, I will jump jump overboard in a second. So there's no moral thing that where like God is, you know, dictated that we should move SM57s in front of the cabinet. But you know, I just did a um a big, very guitar heavy record. Um and one of the guitar players had a bunch of you know vintage marshals and the other guitar player had um you know one of the latest greatest whiz bang digital modeler things. Yeah. I was like, I'm a real amp guy. So what we talked about, and I kind of said, hey, I'm kind of leaning towards using the uh, classic amp approach to this. And he's like, oh, cool, great, let's dial in great sounds. But I almost felt like a little guilty that I hadn't used his rig yeah. at all on the entire what, record. What's the name? There's one that's like 8000 bucks that just looks amazing. But there's the Kemper, there's the Fractal, yeah. those are kind of the bigger ones. So there was one bridge on a record where I'm like, you know, 
the tone from the digital rig really is pretty cool. I think it serves the kind of riff they wrote there. Right. It says, yeah, let's use that rig for this. So when the album was done, all the feedback I got from the band about revisions and things like that, there was only one part where they asked me to turn the guitars down. It was that bridge where we used the digital wow. modeler. They said, yeah, the guitar, you got to pull it down. It's really just getting in the way. We can't hear the tom fill that the drummer's doing. And and that's one of those things. So, I, I, again, I have no moral thing about that, but I just find amps in front of a cabinet still just the superior way to do it. Uh, I don't think people who disagree with me on that are bad people. <laughs> um, acoustic guitars, um, and we got to get cranking because I want to get some Q&A in here, but let me see, Bree's got a bunch of Post-it notes ready to go. Okay, it's got a bunch of them. Got it. Uh, okay, awesome. so acoustic guitars. Um, back in my day in the Jurassic period, mm -hmm. you wanted the acoustic guitar to sound rich and silky. The Eagles were the, the high bar. Uh, from That's what everybody aspired to. Yep. Um, country music still has acoustic guitars that sound rich and sparkly on the top. Mm -hmm. uh, but yet, I hear so many records... Um, folk, modern folk people, singer-songwriters, where the guitars are small-bodied guitars that sound like they have very thick old strings that have mm -hmm. probably been on there for three years. Somebody probably misted them and then put them outside let them rust a little <laughs> bit overnight. You can hear it, but it sounds really good in the context of yeah. the music they're uh -huh. doing. And it sounds contemporary. So I would have to work. If I went back in the studio today, I would have to learn how to make guitars sound like crap so they sounded cool for contemporary <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm not nuts, right? I mean, there, there's this thing about acoustic. It's like, why go spend $6,000 on an acoustic guitar when you could really use, like, the Sears acoustic? Oh, no. What was the, the one uh, that everybody started on? Uh, Silvertone? Yeah. Uh, Silvertone was one of them. <laughs> Stella. Stella, okay. I had a Stella Sunburst acoustic guitar mm -hmm. that I wish I had today because it sounds like every record I'm hearing today. <laughs> yeah. So well, do, you, do you find this a, a, as a modern-day engineer that... You have to be like the anti-acoustic guitar guy. No, I actually, I I, I love a good sounding guitar uh, that's recorded well, and I think they work well even in modern things. You may com compress it There's more aggressively, word, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe scoop out more low end or things on it, um, but I'm I still I think think there's a place, and I try to go for. Good guitar sounds. Part of the difference is back in the day, yeah. a lot more open chords, yep. four four strummy stuff. Yep. Nowadays, very more staccato. Yeah, um, driving eighth notes. Yeah. That's such a prominent part of you know pop music from the last bunch of years. Yeah. But my whole thing with guitars too, and this is thing I, I, I would say ninety five percent of the time recording acoustic guitar, I'm doing it with one mic. Mm hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I, just, I hate the stereo mics. Yeah, just trust me on that. Try using one mic. Don't rule out uh, inexpensive dynamics like a Shure SM57 uh, on there. So <laughs> You're going to laugh, but I, I was actually looking for a cable that I need. I, I've got a drawer in the dresser at home. It's all, all the cables for the Lasco family. And as I was ripping through there, I found a Radio Shack lavalier microphone mm -hmm. that I bought probably in the 70s or 80s. It was like $34. Best sounding, not the best, but one of the best acoustic 
guitar mics ever because it had all the bottom was rolled off uh-huh. 60 dB per hour. Yeah. Um, because it was, you know, up here. You didn't yeah. want shirts rustling. You didn't want all to get proximity. Pro- yeah. yeah, from the vocal being too boomy. Yeah. Um, and you drop that thing. First of all, I would just take a little piece of foam and wrap it around the body, but not cover the holes in the end of the mic. Yeah. And just drop it into the hole of an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. mic and then compress the piss out of it. It sounded amazing. Yeah. 34 bucks. Yeah. And one of the things, if I have a pulpit for a second, yeah. is try putting a $100 Shure SM57 on your acoustic guitar just to see if you like it better than the direct output from your guitar. It's just... I don't like anything better than the direct output Well, that's from the thing. And it's kind of heartbreaking. I'll hear these people like, hey, you know, we just I just finished my album. We're really proud of it. And I put it on. And like in the first two seconds, I get that horrible plastic... And just like, oh, so you didn't really care. It's like, well, I don't have a... Who does that? I don't have a... Way more people than you think. Oh, that's sad. Yep. And uh, You're breaking my heart. I know. And you're taxi people. You shouldn't be breaking... um, Yeah, don't break my heart. (laughs) Exactly. Don't break the screeners. I hear it a lot. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't have a million-dollar Neve console. It's like, who said anything about million-dollar Neve? We're talking a hundred-dollar mic. It just sounds... There's been very few instances where I've had that sound good, but mostly it's just kind of heartbreaking when yeah. when the option for something that would sound so much better is not prohibitive to somebody on a small budget. But yeah, just you know, take a Shure SM57 uh, around the 12th fret, about a foot out, and compress and try it. it. Yeah, <laughs> and compress it, and things like that. Uh, or, or go direct if you love that sound and artistically that's the sound you dreamed of, go for it. But it's okay, just, <laughs> I just hear it kind of sounds sort of like, oh, you didn't care. Or you didn't know any better. That's sad. Now you know better. Exactly. All right. Um, I'm not going to even talk about pianos because everything today is piano samples. It's so rare that people ever use a live piano, but... Um, but that, that's almost an episode right there. But yeah, and I think what we can do in 30 seconds is say, if you want to do piano-driven music, which is awesome, uh, with real piano, which is awesome, mm-hmm. really objectively look at other great artists like a Coldplay, like an Elton John, um, like the Fray, or things like that, and listen to see how the sound of those pianos. They tend to be very, very bright or they tend to be very bass, he- bass light. Yeah. Anyway, just to provide room for all the other uh-huh. instruments. That's so. because anything above middle C, you should roll it <laughs> off 60 dB for octaves. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is funny. I love watching people, and I guess there is a time and a place for this, especially if you're doing something classical, but I love watching people do like an XY or an MS pattern on, on a, a piano. It's like, come on, <laughs> who, who are we kidding? Look at where the dude is playing, or dude at, uh, you know, where are they? Probably in the middle octave, okay? So you got your left hand, you got your right hand, stick a microphone over there, a microphone over there, and just aim it at the strings that the notes are coming from, because it does no good to aim it all the way over there, all the way over there. And check for mono compatibility. Yeah, absolutely. You're guaranteed to have phase problems absolutely. with those spaced microphones. But if you, well, if you get them really close to the strings, you probably won't, but yes. Um, I, I just watch so many people butcher a piano sound with an MS pattern or an XY, and then they'll do something like stick, uh, you know, ex, uh, mics that are like six feet out. Maybe they'll do an MS underneath the mm-hmm. lid and then do an XY out here. Yeah. And they're sitting at the console trying to sum these things and wondering why it sounds like crap. 
I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I've got a bit of advice for samples. Everybody that's using piano samples, when you hear the best piano samples on the market versus a real piano, you can instantly tell the difference. Re-mic the sample. Send it mm -hmm. out to a room and stick a microphone out in the room. Add some room to it. Mm -hmm. It will sound less like it came down a wire. Yep. Works like a charm every time. Um, all right, let's take some questions. Bria has been fastidiously writing your questions down on Post-it notes. As a matter of fact, I think she's gone through my entire pad of Post-it notes. <laughs> all right, so these are not necessarily in the order they came in on. Um, do most, uh, this is from Asaf Franklin, do most of these methods apply to DAW or DAW users also? Absolutely. Everything you and I have talked about today it doesn't have anything to do with platform. Right. It could be Analog Console, Pro Tools, Cubase. Uh, this Logic. is part of the problem is people don't know basic recording techniques, but they have all this technology in front of them. Mm -hmm. Start with the basics. Um, oh, this is a great one. Uh, this is from what? B430? I can't read Bria's writing, but whatever. I'm oh. not, I can't read your writing. Uh, what frequency do you scoop out to get the low end out of an acoustic guitar? Um, well, to get the low end, you know, the high pass filter, that right. fancy thing that cuts off the low end. <laughs> At how many dB per octave? Uh, I would think maybe like six would be a... Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, and uh, just kind of go almost as much as you can. And it, it depends on the context, but kind of go, even if you listened in solo mode, kind of go to, oh, that that's almost a little, that's probably too much, and then go a little bit further. And then listen to see how it sounds with in the bass context. in there. Yeah, um, going to be magical. Yeah, because especially if you listen to a lot of things like contemporary country, well, that contemporary country sounds like Justin Bieber now, but that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> or a hip-hop record. Yeah. yeah, but those guitars, a lot of those will have nothing going on under 500 hertz. Yeah. So it's just about the jangle and the shimmer on top for a lot of that style of music and also you know, a lot of pop and rock and things like that. So, yeah, the simple high-pass filter, the one that came free with your DAW, uh, will work extremely well for that. And kind of you go as much as you can get away with, and then check it out in the mix. Yeah. If you went too far, scale it back. Ooh, Lauren DeGeorge is asking a very technical question. Ooh. How to best avoid compression artifacts and undesirables? You know, look, we're a very accepting company. We don't want to exclude anybody, especially the artifacts of the undesirable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lauren, but you can't go there. No, go ahead. Um, well, I, the, the thing that I could say about that is I don't think artifacts and undesirables aren't empirically undesirable in a way. Because um, really, the, what you might see in one style of music or one instrument, oh, that's really not working well is a really cool feature in another instrument. Right. But the big thing about that is understanding how dramatically attack and release times affect compression. So you should totally come on Sunday morning to the theater and hear me talk about compression, because um, we're going to get into that. But the big thing about that is adjusting, especially release times. Yeah. Your release times are such a massive part of how we hear these kind of artifacts, like pumping, like distortion, and And that like takes that. time to, you can't learn that from reading a chapter in a book and listening to a record for an hour and then playing with your release time. Yeah. It, it ain't gonna happen that fast. But so 90 don't get, minutes in the theater on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> you will get, 
seriously, none of this stuff is instantaneous. Yes. It's, that's why great engineers are great engineers, because they spend a lot of time making mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, if you have clips of live acoustic drums, will those sound sufficiently modern? I think she means samples, yeah. Um, never assume that samples, the samples you use, will fit well into your mix, because samples are kind of designed to make you want to put down your credit card and buy them. Right. So samples tend to be big and full range and things like that. So never make the assumption that, oh, wow, this, I paid a bunch of money for this piano sample, therefore it's right for my song. When I'm working with something off samples, Especially a lot of times I mix for people all over the world and they've printed their samples to audio. So I'm approaching that exactly like I would approach, um, a, you know, something on acoustic piano live recording. So really look at the same things. Is it working with the bass and uh, is it working with the voice? Same kind of issues. Context. Yeah. Over and over and over. You know, the same rules apply to so many things. Um, would, would you apply a modulation effect on a bass drum? I never have. I mean, that goes the, back to my Jurassic period where people, <laughs> you know, use uh, a side chain to trigger a boo, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, um, well, I will yeah. do things. I actually will sometimes trigger, like, sine waves or things like that yeah. for creative effect. But in terms of modulation, bass guitar, yes. Actually, chorusing on bass guitar. Um, uh, but on the bass drum, I've, I've okay. never done it. But maybe now that I've seen this next record I mix, I'm going to be like, ah. Maybe I, can't, cool I can't imagine how that would be good because I mean, it would have to be triggered, otherwise it would be totally random. You'd never get the same thing yeah. twice. So if you're so. triggering the modulation, then you have to worry about the, the, the frequency and where it's switching. Yeah. Yeah. So I never Way have. too much work. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like to work yeah. too hard. Ronan, do you recommend a recording book or video class that uh, Gee, could you possibly recommend a recording book or video class that will help educate non-engineers? That's like saying I want to be a painter, but I don't. No, no, it's no, it's it's a great it's a great question. I think she means somebody who hasn't isn't experienced as an engineer yet. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say is. You know, you can just start on YouTube, kind of go around, um, see if you can, you know, look, check out the people and find out, you know, do a little research on them. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's the thing. I was actually, you know, my weird footnote in history that's not in history at all is I was pretty much the first guy out there doing online tutorials. And, uh, and now, you know, and it was cool and it's great. And I still do it when schedule allows, which isn't that often. <laughs> but now it's sort of like people have been recording for a couple months start their own online series right. of tutorials right. it's like uh gear slots who the hell do you believe so the best thing there's tons of great stuff out on um on youtube uh even like my buddies graham cochran and joe gilder are guys who do a lot of stuff um but really do some research and i recommend mostly find guys or gals who've made a whole bunch of records because if you've made lots of records you're more likely to focus on the stuff that really matters and uh, and try and steer really clear. Just if something looks like an obvious sales pitch, you know, there's a lot of tutorials out there that are just like, here's an excuse to promote this product that I get kickbacks on. So, uh, which by the way, anything we ever recommend, taxi, I can tell you that never in the company's. Sorry, that was a rock star, but never in the company's <laughs> 25 year history have I ever 
ever, ever, ever taken a kickback for anything. So anything we recommend comes from a pure yeah, place. Yeah, I never have either. It doesn't say I won't ever, but I've never done it. So, Do you normally, this is this is a deep subject, yes. uh, do you normally compress your drum overheads? Um, I would say, yes. <laughs> yes, I usually do. Okay, um, um, just enough to keep them safe or enough to actually compress them for the sound? Well, I never think about right, compression. I say limiting versus compression. Yeah, I never think about compression as something for safe. Okay. I think about compression as this is a cool creative tool. Okay. I get to play God and manipulate things. Right. So, uh, but I do it a lot. It's a lot of responsibility. I know. <laughs> but you know, compression affects. You know, I can where the snare sits in relationship to the cymbals, which is something I'm, I'm tweaking a lot. It's affecting sort of the amount of sustain from cymbals. It's affecting the amount of room ambience in the over overheads. Uh, um, here's something that everybody who once you start messing with your overheads. Um, you will get the washy, phasey sounding cymbals because you've probably, you know, the distance between, the ratio between where the mics are relative to the cymbals and mm -hmm. each other comes into play. And then people add compression because they hear somebody talking about compressing the overheads mm -hmm. and what they've got is a freaking train wreck. Yeah. How do they avoid that? Well, I know, if you, the really washy cymbals, and especially cymbal bashers, Yeah. Symbol bashing is just so amateur, and uh, <laughs> and that's really one of the things. If you have a symbol basher, and that's really somebody who plays their symbols really hard, and the drums themselves light, um, yeah. is who does that? I know people do, but pre, yeah, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, people who aren't pros, and yeah. it's you know it's this physical, exciting, visceral thing, so it makes sense why people would feel that way. But oh, that's just so difficult and terrible to record. And yeah, this in everything in the room. By yeah, the way, and with those mind. people, I I can't use a lot of compression. I uh, also can't really even use a lot of room mics or overhead mics. You have to pull those down and really bring up the close mics or in a much more the, prominent the, way. The, the black trigger symbols. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Beat the crap out of that thing. Have a yeah. great time. But that's <laughs> one of the big difference. If you're a drummer, want to work on more sessions, being able to balance yourself is one of the big differences between the great pros and all the other guys and gals. Vanessa, baby. Yep. Um, best compressor for vocals of about two to three hundred dollars. I mean, I think we talked about it. Well, yeah, that <laughs> that FMR audio one is really good. Really much else beyond that, um, I think the plug-in options are yeah are great. Um, there are a lot. Of, I mean, friends of mine, Shirelli being one. Um, He's got a Fairchild. He's got an, an original, like, working Fairchild that he doesn't use mm -hmm. all that much anymore mm -hmm. because plugins have gotten so good. So yeah, and I still I still use a lot. I mean, my you know my vocals generally go through a few thousand dollars worth of outboard. Yeah. But not all the time. But one of the things I would say is look if you if you're just getting into compression, especially with vocals, look for what's an opto style. Right. So that's an LA-2A style, yeah. uh, or you'll see them called opto or electro-optical. Um, there's a few good ones out on the market. Opto compressors are wonderful because they sound really good and they're so stupidly easy to use. Which is like perfect for me. Yeah. LA-3s, LA-2s are amazing. Somebody recently asked me what my favorite compressor of all time was, and I said, if I had, you mean like overall, like you put on almost anything, LA3? Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, opto compressor and basically it was more 
an output. <laughs> that was about yeah, it. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's a bunch. I mean, I don't I don't use Wave stuff, but their CLA two yeah uh, is solidly good. There's a um, BX Opto from Brainworks is one of the Opto things that I use. Uh, tell most people of the what time. an Opto is because you know it's probably like a foreign language to them. Yeah. They don't know. So, without getting too geeky in it, go um, ahead, get geeky. So, well, again, this Opto is a really simple thing where it's more compression, less compression, adjust your output. And the Opto part is because in the detector circuit, it actually goes and, you know, the energy, the voltage from that vocal lights up a little bulb. And there's a photo <laughs> um, element, and so the more voltage it goes in, the brighter that little light bulb this is. This is like porn to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Some guys want to look at dirty yeah, pictures, exactly. and I want to hear about optics. Exactly. I love this. And stuff. so the brighter that bulb is, the more attenuation uh, the opto compressors will do. And it's amazing when you think, dudes came up with this stuff in the '50s. Yeah. And, and it sounds great. Yeah, and I, I've, I've got, you know, high-end, I've got a couple really high-end opto compressors and use tons of plug-in opto compressors as well. But they're great on bass, they're great on guitars, it's just stupid. Get into an LA-2A style or an opto compressor and go nuts with it. <laughs> Do you ever record drums and cymbals separately? No, but that's a... <laughs> Thank you. But, but um, uh, Dave Grohl's drums on uh, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Songs yeah. for the Deaf. Uh, were recorded that way. You you have to have a great drummer to pull that off. Uh, just so you guys know, I'm going to give up the name of one. No, I don't know his number, but um, Troy Llewellyn. Uh, I think that was Troy Llewellyn. Uh, the guitar player in Queens of the Stone Age uh, was a taxi screener. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and nobody knew. <laughs> um, that's because the first record hadn't taken off yet. They were just recording. Uh, vocal harmonies all by the same vocalist. Would you apply different EQ to each of them or the same? That is a great question. It is. It's an um, interesting question. Absolutely different. Okay. Um, and even beyond that, I would look at applying different recording techniques. Mm -hmm. So so you get a textural exactly. layer. Yeah, because yeah. one of the things you realize the more and more you work on recording that more of the same piled on top of each other makes records smaller not bigger yeah so we're looking for things that have diversity so you know if you're singing like a minor third harmony on the same mic from the same singer mm -hmm. there's a lot of similarities in there you know you get into octaves and stuff um, but I'd be inclined to maybe put the harmony vocals on a separate microphone or a separate polar pattern mm -hmm. uh, one of the things is I don't know this gauge can do multi-pattern but it's not it's single okay it's cardio but like if you switch over to an omnidirectional mic you're going to get less proximity effect so you'll get less low end boom from it but even if i'm doing big layering you know if it's just you know oh we're putting the fifth harmony on there yeah don't worry too much but if it's a stack you know i'll even put the the singer at different distances yeah if we're going to double up absolutely yeah, yeah. If you want to double things up you know sing here versus sing here one of the great things about hearing a group of singers together is they all have a different distance relationship right. to the listener interacting uh, in so different I ways. I love this stuff. I really do. This stuff gets me off. But, and, uh, uh, but the same big, thing for strings, by the way. Yes. Small string sections, oh, you know, do them and then record it with the mic moved back yes. a couple feet, uh, try yeah. changing the mic, and it will make it sound more orchestral. Yes, and in terms of the different EQs, I would go, go for EQ, compression, all those things, to get the lead vocal to sound great. Um, yeah, and think of more of a pop thing, and then your harmonies in a way to support that. If you're doing something like, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, where 
it's three equal parts of one instrument. You might want to do that a little differently, but if it's a main singer with you know harmony stacks, choral type things, I like to get my lead vocal sounding great and then bring in the others in a way that supports it, which is usually cutting out tons. Mm -hmm. So ton, a lot of times a harmony vocal, especially if you're doing up like sevenths and octaves and higher parts, I may kill tons of low end and even tons of mids. So it's just some of the shimmer in the air around there, especially on something more layered up. I've got to say, only because you mentioned Crosby, Stills, and Nash, um, after the show, go check out a song called Guardian Angel on an album called Stills Young, Long May You Run. It was the first time in my life I ever got to record a super group. And I remember my finger was shaking on the fader <laughs> as I'm saying, Neil, step back. Graham, step back. Mm -hmm. Stephen, come in. And, and Crosby, get closer. And I told them all to drop a quarter by their left toes so that they could mm -hmm. remember where yeah. they were when they went back out in the room. But I learned something from Stephen Stills that night that has stuck with me forever, which is, and you just mentioned it a minute ago. So I love the fact that you mentioned that and then talked about those guys. Always record vocals with an omni, uh, well, I shouldn't say always, but as often as you can. If you record lead vocals with the microphone in omni, you will be so much better off than working cardioid because you don't get the proximity effect. Popping doesn't happen as much. You get some of the room and it just works better. And I learned that from Stills. So there you go. Stephen Stills is now giving you advice. Exactly. And by the way, not to argue, argue too much. Yeah. Um, omni, you need to the room becomes much more important. Yeah, especially a, I said when yeah, you can. Yeah, especially because you're, if you're going to make something contemporary, you're going to compress the bejesus out of it, which will bring up room. So if you have a not great room or a lot of it, that can create problems. And Use one of those. Um, by the way, uh, Will Smith's kid has an office, the front of this office building, mm -hmm. and they've got a studio set up there, and they've got this thing that looks like... <sighs> Can't really yeah, explain I know those, but they're putting reflective surfaces right by the mic and increasing phase problems. Uh, I know, but they've got a curvy one. <laughs> uh -huh, so I'm yeah. wondering how that would work. I, I'm only it's an option. Yeah, wondering it's an option. if you had a mic in Omni and killed the room by using one of those mm -hmm. things. I wonder. I'm curious. Yeah, it, they they do kind of work, but they also, you know, are partially reflective, so introduce phase problems. And I actually kind of really love the sound of cardioid mics. Really? Yeah. But I'll, I'll move a singer a little farther back. Yeah. So there won't be dramatic build-up of proximity effect. But I just, I'm just, I love uh, cardio mics. Uh, two weeks ago, um, I was doing a show and I was using, I was showing vocal techniques. You know, the mm -hmm. uh, aim it at the mouth from up uh -huh. there and let them yep. blow out there. You know, all that stuff. And, and afterwards, Bria said, "Wow, I learned something new on the show." It's like. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, that was not going to happen this week, but you know, <laughs> at least you got it last week. Yeah, your hands up, boy. Uh, how we do? We're way over time. Oh, uh, sorry, how would you compress an acoustic piano on a classical piece? Um, the short answer of that would be uh, slower. You probably want to keep lower ratios, mm -hmm. you know, even something like a two to one, maybe even one point five to one, maybe up to four, but generally not radical if it is truly classical. Right. Um, and you want to be careful about doing your release times too fast because the faster release times, which are awesome for rock and roll, can start to introduce some distortion and things like that, But they, which doesn't necessarily serve uh, things like classical recording. Yeah. But, but <laughs> you need to be careful because if you start to go too slow with your release times, it can actually start to affect the rhythmic feel of the playing. Mm -hmm. So generally, not a whole lot, but if it's the kind of thing where you need to do 
a lot of compression. Like if we say, oh, a classical piano, but this is going to be in a film score or trailer where it's likely to actually be very compressed. Um, rather, sometimes if you're having trouble getting enough compression from one, it's actually just layer up different kinds of compressors people, in, in series, one after the other. They don't give enough thought. I find that um, people who are just starting out give very little thought uh, to attack and release on compressors as it relates to the, the rhythmic mm -hmm. the, you know, um, composition of what yep. they're doing. Uh, well, you know, I mean, especially in classical piece, you could have a, 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 a part that's all of a sudden, you know, very choppy, very staccato, very mm -hmm. dynamic, and then go into something that's lilty and legato after it, and, mm -hmm. and pretty damn hard to have a compressor that's going to serve both of those well. Yeah, well, that's why the, the Fairchild 670s, you know, the yeah. venerated ones, their, their longer release times are in the neighborhood of three minutes. <laughs> for just that reason. I'm going to make a sandwich. I'll be back <laughs> exactly, when it's done. Yeah. Um, do you close mic record the toms normally, or do you pan them? Uh, and, do, and do you pan them? Uh, okay, yeah, so and, the question is, normally I would say the answer is yes. On something like really singer-songwriter or rootsy, I may not. Mm -hmm. I might just try and go for a very minimalist drum micing thing. Um, and, and I obviously do pan them uh, if, if it's a stereo drum set and there's basically two ways I approach it. It's either going to get uh, out to extreme left right center just to have that very unnatural dramatic thing which is really fun in rock and roll. Yeah. But what I'm more likely to do most when I'm mixing the overwhelming majority of things in a mix are hard right, hard left or right up the middle. Right. I'd say 90 something percent of it. But some of the things that aren't is I'll look at my stereo image that I get from panning the overheads out left and right, and I'll usually pan the toms where they show up in, in the, the image. Right. So I'll kind of reinforce where they are in the stereo field. Which also eliminates some possibility of phase anomalies yeah. because and, it's relative. Yeah. But, but also a lot of times, too, is when we're making a rock and roll and a pop record, caring about being authentic is, you know, once we've put a mic on a, a rack tom, we've obviously thrown thrown right. out the idea that we care about authentic. <laughs> um, so, oh, no more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> All right. Um, free stuff. Free stuff. Yeah. Who's <laughs> this? Uh, What's uh, the biggest thing I can do to make my song sound more full? I think I watched this episode twice. You, you can turn up the bass. There you go. And I'm not being sarcastic about that. I didn't think so. Your homework. I already gave you some others, but with bass two, I I said mute it and unmute it and see how it changes. But also just change the level up and down because if you have a the bass, especially if it's got some nice compression on it, it is one of the most dramatic things you can do to change the overall fullness and tonality from something being sort of clear and open and spacious and big and thick and round. So. Spend some time listening. Pull the bass up and down, not focusing on the bass, but listening how your vocals, how your guitars. Everything you need to learn relative to what Ronan just said can be learned from listening to the Saturday Night Fever record and Stevie Wonder Intervisions. <laughs> just bury yourself in those <laughs> records and understand what bass does from those two records. It's life-changing. Trust me. <laughs> Free stuff. It smells new. It smells free. No, it doesn't. It smells love, expensive. Love microphones. Let's look inside. Let's see. Is there anything inside? Uh oh. <laughs> Crap. Yeah. It was exciting that it was free. 
Yeah, you've got to pay for the repairs. It's got stuff on the inside. Look, it's not a fake microphone. It's real. <laughs> so, how are we going to get this microphone away? Huh. You know, this is kind of like the time I took my parents' garbage disposal apart yeah. and didn't get it put back together. I wanted to make a space capsule out of it. Um, Eric, can you get that back on there while I'm doing my other stuff here, which is... So you can blame it on me when it doesn't work. Nah, it'll be fine. It's all right. I've got another one. Uh, <laughs> I'll go in front. All right. By the way, just so you know, that microphone, which has been given to us by Gage... Um, Secret stage. This was... See that red dot? That means that it was part of Shirelli's secret stash of personal microphones. Never been used. This one is still a Voyagin. <laughs> totally broke it. Yeah. Whoever wins this microphone, I hope you like it with their famous Lasco stamp and quality. <laughs> uh, it'll be fine by the time you get it, really. Um, and don't forget that it comes with the mic clone, which emulates... Um, an M49, a U87, a U67, a U47, a 47 FET, a C12, a 414, and a C800. And I have personally not used this, but from what I hear, it sounds remarkably authentic with that microphone in conjunction with that. So, um, and I think that just the software alone goes for 99 bucks, and the microphones now are, I want to say, 299 on the website, but it comes with that. Um, but... Uh, they are doing a thing that if you send them an email at info at gagemikes.com, they have changed the website. It's now uh, under new ownership. It's gagemikes.com. And tell them that you're a taxi member. They will give you a discount. But we're getting ready now to give this one away. So, Bria, um, I want all you guys and ladies out there to type in a plus one and Bria, and try not to do like 10 of them in a row. That's just so not cool. Bria is going to run her finger, the flying fickle finger of fate, up and down, and she's going to pick somebody who will be the winner of this wonderful microphone. And look, you get a free piece of fabric with it. Every microphone comes with free fabric. Uh, and... Jason K125, I hope you're in America because we sure don't want to pay the fuss to just send that to like Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be ironic if we had to send it back to China. Yeah. <laughs> Jason K, congratulations. You need to email Taxi TV, taxi TV at taxi.com um, and give Bria your street address and we will send this puppy out. It probably won't leave in tomorrow's mail, but in a couple of days. And then, they are pretty wonderful. Um, and then we will get you hooked up with the people at Gage and they will give you the code. Um, you know what? Uh, by the way, I want to mention to you guys, first of all, when is your thing Sunday morning? I've got one on Sunday morning at 9 or 10. I've got one other thing. So I'm doing two driver's eds. I'm doing one-on-one -on -one mentoring. I'm doing mentor lunch wow. and production bar. Oh man! Okay, and so, maybe something else. So uh, I'm around, but that's pretty also, full schedule. And well, I don't know if I'll have time to be at it. No, but we have a we'll have a table in the booksellers room. Great. And I love getting to talk to members. So there was a ton of questions that came that we didn't get to. So hard to believe with all those posts and those breaking came. But uh, <laughs> yeah. like I mean, we could make a, a book out of that. Yeah, so. but hunt, hunt me down at the rally. I, I go to get to meet all you guys and help out and answer questions. So. 
come to my driver's ed things or just hunt me down at the tables or book me for one-on-one. -on -one he doesn't party. mean literally. Like, don't. <laughs> Not that kind of hunting. Um, no 30 out sixes at the road rally. Um, what else do I want to tell you guys? Oh, um, we are doing a, a private screening for people who are at the road rally of a movie called Bang, the Burt Burns story. Do you know who wrote Twist and Shout? I don't. Burt Burns. Burns, I imagine. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know that guy had 51 hit songs in like a five wow. or six year period, and nobody knows who he is. So there was a documentary made, and Shirelli called me up in May and said, Lasco, whatever you're doing right now, drop it, get in your car, drive to Santa Monica, wherever it was playing at a Lemley Theater, go see this movie. Well, it was a one-night screening, maybe two-night screening. I didn't see it, and just by sheer coincidence, happened to meet one of the producers of the film and we had to jump through some hoops but the fine folks at uh at that company uh let's say bananarama i think anyway we have permission to do a one night screening so we're doing a movie with michael uh friday night at 5 30 in the grand ballroom free Ooh. popcorn and i'm just so excited nice. to see this movie um he wrote Hang On Sloopy. Nice. Yeah, just a, a, an amazing... And Bang was the record company that he formed with... Uh, it was Bert for B, A for Ahmed Erdogan, um, and for Nashui Erdogan, who was Ahmed's brother, and G was Jerry Wexler? Somebody from Atlantic. Uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, that was where the Bang came from. Quite an amazing story, so don't miss that. And register for the road rally. Go to taxi.com slash rally. Yes, Bria? Like oh, yes. Like and subscribe. <laughs> Press that button right now. I mean, seriously, you have to. And like us. And we will be back next week is Robin Frederick. Next week is the 23rd, right? Yeah, Robin Frederick is going to join me. Ronan. Awesome. Man, uh, man. Fun as always. Yeah, look at that. We've almost, uh, that may be a new record for oh. time, uh, but it's good. And thank you guys for joining us. We will see you next week on another really super wonderfully exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah. Bye bye. <laughs>